Now this is our graduation Sunday and um, you know some of our graduates have gone through I guess it's 13 years of schooling and um, a couple several of them are graduating from college um, some are going back for an extra dose uh, Emily's gonna go do her masters and things like that but I wanted to like um, give them a lesson that they probably didn't get in school and I think it's a really important uh, lesson. And it's the art of apologizing without apologizing. Okay? So, you know, this is kind of advanced stuff. So, um, if you need to take notes, go right ahead. So, this is the art of apologizing without apologizing. So, if you say things, you always start off your apology with the words, I am sorry. Okay? That's, if you do that, or I apologize. So some of the ways to apologize without apologizing. I am sorry you feel that way. I'm not really sorry about what I did, but I'm sorry that you feel that way. I'm sorry if I, if I did something. You know, that's not again admitting that I did anything. It's just saying, hypothetically speaking, if I did something, I'm going to apologize for it. Of course, you could also use the infamous, I am sorry, but. Because, again, you're, you're starting with the words, I'm sorry, but you're following it up with an explanation of why whatever happened really wasn't your fault. And, of course, if you want to put it all together, this is the master class to be able to pull off this apology, what makes it great is it combines all the apologies, all the fake apologies, and it's so long that the person might get confused and all they remember is, you said I'm sorry. So you can practice this one at home. It does take some time, but you basically say, I'm sorry if I did something that might have offended you, but I didn't know that you would react that way and do not know what else I could have done. Good? Again, a lot of words, haven't really apologized. That's something that we, you know, see in our culture today for a long time. Like, you never heard public figures apologize. Presidents or, you know, celebrities, anybody. They wouldn't apologize, not publicly. And then somewhere back in the 90s or something, somebody apologized, and I can't even tell you who it was, but some big prominent figure, might have been a president, apologized. And what happened was surprising. They apologized, and their public approval rating went up. So guess what? Hey, if I can apologize for something and my approval rating goes up, I'm going to start apologizing for everything. And then you would start having the parade of apologies. And now we, we have the analysis of the apologies that comes along with people's apologies. It's not enough just to apologize. Now, you know, journalists and talk show people, they analyze the apology. How good is it? How sincere is it? They even have professionals, you know, these image consultants, PR people that write the apology for the person so that it's really careful because of course they're concerned not just about their image but legal problems. So we live in a world where like apologies have kind of 
lost their, their meaning. They're not as, it's not as important as it was anymore in just simply saying, I'm sorry. And we do this with God. With God, we, we, we say we're confessing our sin. We say we're apologizing. But we apologize without really understanding what we've done. Without really understanding the damage that has been caused. We are really apologizing not because it's coming from the depth of our hearts. We're apologizing just to make sure everything's good between us and God. We're more apologizing for ourselves, so that, so that we feel okay. We feel like, okay, God's on my side again. But we're not really apologizing. And we really can't. We can't apologize until we really understand what we've done. And it's hard for us to understand what we've done, especially when we're, we're new Christians. When we're new Christians, you know, we, we get it. And, and, but as we become, kind of grow in our faith, we get to this point where it, it just becomes like, well, okay, it's, I'm sorry. Sorry, God. We move on. Well, what we're going to look at this week is how did the Israelites, how did they in the time of Nehemiah, how did they apologize? How did they repent? And how is it different from ours? We looked at this very closely on Wednesday night during the Bible study, and we're not going to look as closely this morning at it. But what did they do? Some of it, as we read it, it's going to be really strange to us. And we can't even picture ourselves doing it. And frankly, some of it, I don't think we could do because we just don't have the mindset as, a, as a, even a church to do what they did. But what they're, what they're doing, not the actual things they're doing, but the reasons that they're doing it, those are certainly things we can do and we can learn from. So where are we now in this story? Nehemiah's come back. The wall's been built. The city was secure. And last week, the word was read. The word was read. Well, it's hard sometimes in understanding how the stories were told and the chronology of the stories and things like this. But even last week, we, we saw this element of, of repentance, of apologizing. But here, they're going to come back and they're going to look at it a little more closely. So let's look at Nehemiah 9. Verse 1, where it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with dirt or earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. 
for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Again, we, we look at this and we go, that's weird. Tens of thousands of people have gathered. And they're standing there in sackcloth. If you don't know what sackcloth is, if you've ever seen like, they used to, we used to call it burlap or, you know, you've ever seen a, you know, sometimes you still see in the store like maybe some potatoes are in this brown bag that's kind of rough. And, and this sackcloth that would have been, would have been worn. And it was meant to, to not, it was meant, to, I think, for a couple of reasons. One was it didn't feel good. It wasn't comfortable. That was one thing. And then the second thing it was, it was to eliminate all the distinctions between the people in, in terms of like, okay, the really wealthy people would have dressed one way and the poorer people would have dressed a different way. The men would have dressed one way, the women would have dressed a different way. But here, they're all dressed the same. They all look the same. They all have this sackcloth on, this burlap. Second thing they're this talks about is that they have this dirt on their heads. This again was a way of grieving and mourning and showing, you know, your grief by, you know, they would throw the dirt and it would, it would be on their heads. And then it tells us that even before all of this, even before showing up to this time of, of gathering together to repent, they had fasted. Again, for us, this is just like, this is, this is weird, you know? You know, if, if, if I said like, oh, you know what? Next week, next Sunday, it's going to be, you know, Repentance Day at, at Wiley Baptist Church. And we're going to, you know, do what they did here. It may be our lowest attended Sunday ever. People, if they have to show up wearing sackcloth, you know, what if you're like driving and you have on that burlap sack and then you realize, oh man, I forgot something at Long's and then you go over to Long's and you have to get out and, you know, you want to go buy some coffee and the guys in Starbucks look at you like, wow, that's weird. But we can't even imagine it. We can't even imagine coming together to repent together. For us, repentance is a private thing. It's a thing you do on your own. It's a thing you just do in your mind between you and God. Oh, maybe you tell 
a couple people here and there, maybe at some point you're going to get to share a testimony about how, you know, through this repentance God did, did these amazing things for you. But pretty much during the time of repentance, it's a private matter. We also see here that their repentance involved um, reading God's Word, going back to the book of the law, quarter of the day, probably three hours or so. By the way, they were standing. Again, we talked about this before, how, how that would be so hard for us, you know, to stand for, you know, even for our entire worship service. It's only like a third of that. But they would stand. They would hear God's word. And then they would confess and they would worship. And their worship wasn't, you know, again, as, as good as our worship is here at the church. Their worship was totally different. We get a clue from that when it's when the Levites say, stand up. Their worship didn't lead them to just simply be like, I got a good feeling about God. I think God's got a good feeling about me. That's great. No, it's more than that. The more that they worshiped God, the more that they understood they were in the presence of God, the more that they understood His holiness and His love and His grace and His greatness, the more they did in that moment, the more it forced them to the ground. They're on the ground. They're not sitting comfortably. They're on the ground. They're worshiping. And that's the first thing we see here. We see that repentance, when repentance is done right, repentance leads to proper worship of God. Repentance leads to proper worship of God. But it's not, again, this casual repentance. Notice, they, they prepare. I asked this question on Wednesday night, like, how many of you prepare even to come to worship service? I don't mean get dressed. You know, we're thankful that you get dressed. I don't mean bathe. We are very grateful that you bathe. But how many of you prepare to worship together, to be together, to hear God's Word together, to be confronted by God's Word? How many of us prepare for that? And when do you start preparing? Or do we just kind of casually walk in to church and just say, all right, God, show me what you got. Do whatever you're going to do, and if you don't do anything, that's okay too. Because you know what? I'm here, and that's all that really matters. Do we prepare? Do we come expecting? Do we come wanting, hungering, thirsting? They prepared. I don't think that they all just got up that morning and said, 
everybody just simultaneously on their own thought like, hey guys, I'm just going to wear sackcloth today. And then they showed up, oh, you got sackcloth too, and you too, wow. You know, they wouldn't have known, you know, about the one guy that didn't get the memo because they didn't know what memos were. But if you, for whatever reason, showed up in your normal clothes, all right, that would have been a problem. They had obviously prepared. They prepared as a group. The fasting, we talked about the, you know, on, on Wednesday night, we talked about what fasting does for us. But they're fasting during the whole fast, whether it was for 12 hours, 24 hours, it doesn't matter. They were fasting to prepare for this time together. Again, I'm going to tell you I'm culturally bound by being a 21st century American. If you show up at church next week with sackcloth on and dirt on your heads, I'm going to think it's weird. Okay? But here's something I think is equally weird and in fact very harmful. That we don't do anything to prepare for worship. That we don't, we don't prepare, you know, the day before. We don't necessarily get up in the morning and prepare. Maybe, you know, five minutes before service, we might, we might do something. But I'm going to tell you something. If you will prepare... If you will prepare, it will transform this service. Not because Cheryl will suddenly become a better piano player or a better singer or that I will suddenly become a better preacher or that Jeremy or Eric or Bill or one of the deacons might become a better scripture reader. No. We're going to be just as good or bad as we are, right? We're not going to change. You're going to change. You're going to come here and not, think, not be thinking like, you know, did the pastor entertain me today? Did he keep me interested? No, you're going to come here saying, the pastor's bringing God's word. And some days, pastor makes it really easy to receive God's word. He cuts our food up really nicely. And other times, it's hard but I'm going to listen. I'm going to expect it. Worship. So many times, if you come to this place not prepared to worship, I guarantee you this is what happens. As soon as you get here, and as soon as this this morning which John starts singing this song, you're immediately going to decide how much you're going to worship based on the song. What are you, crazy? Whether we worship or not is not based on the songs that we sing. It's based on the condition of our hearts. Coming together. Worshiping God with all we are. But people come in and they immediately decide 
how engaged they're going to be in the music, how engaged they're going to be in worship based on whether they like the song or whether they know the song or not. This place, these people who, who prepare and put all the time in for these worship services, you're, it's not, they're not going to change. What's going to change is we're going to change. But why is that? Why does repentance, why does repentance lead us to proper worship of God as it does here? As it does with these guys, you know, they not only prepared and they spent this time hearing God's word and confessing, and then it says, it says, stand up and bless the Lord your God. Why is that? Well, when we repent, it's a reminder of two really important things. It's a reminder of our unworthiness. It's a reminder that, that our best is nowhere near what God is worth. It's a reminder of, of that even though, unlike these people 2,500 years ago, even though we have the advantage of having the Holy Spirit in our lives, we still struggle with the same things. True repentance reminds us of that. But true repentance also, it also reminds us of God's greatness, of God's love, of His abundant grace. Every year, there is a season when the people of Israel would go through a series of festivals and holy days. Every year, and it was at the beginning of every year, but every year they would go through this process last almost a month. And it was this process of repentance that would then lead to acts of atonement and it would be a recommitment to the covenant. Every year they reminded themselves of this. By the way, they were also doing it throughout the year. The temple was always there. The altar fire was always lit. Sacrifices were offered constantly. But for one month out of the year, there was a special focus on this. And it was a reminder again of their unworthiness and the greatness of God who even though they had repeatedly broken the covenant, God still upheld His side of the promise. See, it's not just an understanding of His greatness and our unworthiness. It's also understanding that God is in the process of, of helping us become more and more of who He called us to be, the image of His Son. He can make us great, but not great in the world sense of great, but great in His love, great in His grace, great in His truth.
See, if you come here into this worship service in that spirit, in that mind, oh, you can't help but celebrate. You can't help but want to know, okay, God, what's next? What next? What's the next thing you want to work on in my life? What's the next victory? What's the next challenge? How do you want to stretch me? How do you want to use me? I want to hear today, God. Tell me what's next. You see that they, 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 they take this so seriously. It's not enough just to throw up a simple apology. Oh, sorry, God, we broke the covenant. No. This then leads into this very long, this very long like prayer. And in this prayer to God, they're, they're, going, to be doing, um, they're going to be doing some very important things. They're going to be remembering some very important things. For example, in verse 9 it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And then in verse 16 it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. And then a little bit later it says, But you are a God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. They, they, they go through this, this history of, of God and the Israelites. All the way back to creation. About how God created all things. And about how He established this covenant with Abraham. And then how He delivered them from slavery to Egypt. But they also keep reminding themselves of all those God had done all of that. The people would still disobey. They would still worship false gods. They would still treat one another not according to God's law and not even according to God's love. But they would take advantage of each other, victimize each other, even enslave each other. But it, it ends with this. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Repentance helps us remember the mercy of God. I could have put in there, repentance helps us remember the grace of God. I could have put in there, repentance, repentance helps us remember the love of God. All related terms. But they all have this concept of that, that God is again and again pouring out His love, pouring out His provision, His protection, even though the people continually rebel. That God loves us 
despite our sin. He then ends this section by saying this, Behold, we are slaves this day. And now he's talking about the modern day when now they're there and they've restored the city, but they still see themselves as slaves. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Important things to pick up here. They're looking at things honestly. Yes, the Persians were better than the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are better than the Assyrians. But we're still slaves. We still have to pay a certain amount of tribute to the Persians, and if we don't, they'll come and they'll kill us. We're still slaves. Even though we've been here, and some of them had been there for several generations, even though the king of Persia has allowed us to rebuild the wall, and we have the temple, and we're reestablishing ourselves as people, we are still slaves. So they look at things realistically. They're not just being like everything's great and sunshiny and it's all awesome. Thank you, God. No, they're looking at the situation. But also look at what they're saying. In the middle of that, it says, its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. They are still acknowledging that even in this tough time when they're slaves, God is still in control. That was the amazing thing, the kind of really weird, odd thing about this this faith at this point in human history. The Israelites didn't believe God was God just because they were winning or just because they were the most powerful kingdom or just because they were sovereign. God was God in every situation. It's the story of Job. It's the story of Ruth. That in good times and bad times, God is still God. Whether I feel like I'm free or enslaved, God is still God and He's still sovereign. And look at what it says right after that. The kings you've set over us because of our sins. It would be easy to blame God and say, God, it's your fault. You're in charge of all this stuff, and you let these Persians come in and control us. It would have been easy to blame God. But not if you've actually repented. Because they say, we're in this situation because of our sin. And the fact that it's not worse, and the fact that you just haven't allowed us to be wiped off the face of this earth, is because of your love and your grace. They they acknowledge the truth of their situation. They acknowledge the ultimate 
one who's in control of it, but they also acknowledge the reason, and it's because of their sins. How does this help us? I think when we remember God's mercy, what it does is it helps us persevere through life's challenges. Life's going to be hard. You know, one of the other great things about COVID is that, you know, people haven't had to try to generate graduation speeches and then people haven't had to listen to them. Um, Where people basically are, you know, saying the same thing over and over. You know, Cheryl and I were listening to one, I won't say the school, uh, their, you know, their valedictory addresses. And, you know, Cheryl said something which is true. It's like, we're asking 18-year-olds to pass on wisdom that they have not lived long enough to really know is wisdom. And, you know, and then the other thing we do is we bring in these outside speakers who don't know the people that they're talking to and they're going to give some general wisdom, general advice to them. Well, let me just tell you that they, I probably wouldn't be a really popular graduation speaker because part of my message would be life is hard and it's going to get harder. You think high school is tough? You haven't seen anything yet. You were worried that you might fail a class? How about you fail, you lose your job, you lose your house because you can't pay your bills? How about that kind of pressure? Again, not going to be super popular on the graduation speaker circuit. But here would be the other part of it. If you trust in God, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you will have an unfathomable strength and an unfathomable peace and an unfathomable unfathomable joy to allow you to walk through whatever lies ahead. It won't be easy. You may come out of it wounded. You may even lose. But God will be there with you. He will never give up on you. Even if you give up on yourself, He will never give up on you. He made a covenant with you. You made a covenant with Him. He will never leave nor forsake you. That's why we we need to repent. Because when we repent, we remember the mercy of God. When we remember the mercy of God, it helps to know that we can face anything that life throws at us. And we can face it for real. We don't have to lie to ourselves, making it seem like it's better than it is. This ends with this verse. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 
So they renew the covenant, and then they, they, they sign their names to it. At least all the leaders do. See, what repentance does is it doesn't just help us persevere. It also points us in the right direction. You've heard repentance is this, this military term that talks about turning around. Repentance is this admission, I'm going in the wrong direction. Even if I'm just a little bit in the wrong direction, it's still wrong. And repentance helps me get in the right direction. And it helps me leave behind what's weighing me down. Pointed in the right direction. And I can run freer. Because that, that thing that was holding me down, weighing me down, it's not there anymore. Repentance leads to action. A lot of people don't want to, to repent because they're afraid, you know, like they're afraid sometimes to go to the doctor. And a lot of times people are afraid to go to the doctor because they think the doctor is going to give them bad news. Or some people are afraid to go to the doctor because they're afraid the doctor is going to tell them things that they don't want to do. Like, eat healthier. Exercise more. And it's like, as long as the doctor doesn't say it, even if I know it, I don't have to do it. But if I go to the doctor and he says, do it, how many of you have tried to like, you know, got that blood test coming up in a couple weeks? <sighs> I'm not going to eat any fried foods, try to get that cholesterol down. I'm going to try to walk a little bit more, drink good water. I'm going to, you know, for about two, three weeks, we're going to try to be as healthy as we can, to get that blood test looking as good as possible, right? And then you get the blood test, even before you get the results on the way home. You know, bacon double cheeseburger with fries, right? Because you know you're not going to be tested. I think that's why sometimes we're afraid to repent. Because repentance is, is, it should result in us changing. So there's, and yet that's exactly what we should want to do as Christians. So we look here, we see what true repentance does for us. It's not just an emotional, cathartic response. It's more than that. If you can jump the emotions and get right to the proper action, okay, fine. But most of us, we can't get there because unless we feel what we have done, we don't really fully understand what we have done. The good things we find here is repentance helps us remember. And as the Israelites remember, to help them remember God's provision and God's judgment, God's grace and God's love. You see, that's the great thing. When I remember all of that, when I remember all of that, then I'm not afraid of God's judgment because I know my verdict is in the hands of the God who is the God of grace and the God of love. No reason to fear. See, the, 
The problems we have is when we get into this idea that we don't really need to dig down deep and really search our hearts and really find things to, you know, that, to repent over because, you know, we're good enough. We're better than most. And that could very well be true. But if we're, our goal is to be Christ-like, we are never good enough. And the objective isn't to be better than most. It's to be more and more like Him. We have this struggle in the church sometimes. And when we don't repent, it becomes worse. And that's where we overestimate our own goodness. And we underestimate God's grace. Let's be a people who repent. Let's be a people who want God to search our hearts deeply. And then let's be a people who can move forward with strength and joy and purpose.